Okay, well, let's, uh, let's transition to this morning and the scriptures. And uh, so uh, let's go ahead and at least just first ask God to come and, and bless his word. And I sound a little hollow up here. I don't know if you can fix that or if it's just my mic. So, um, Father, thank you for, again, the chance to worship, to partake in sending people out across the world. And thank you for the fact that you have not left us without a clear spoken voice through your word and by your spirit into our hearts and minds. So this morning, we want to be good listeners and we want to be even better doers. So transform us by the power of what you speak in us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 4 this morning, so uh, if you need a Bible, can you just go ahead and raise your hands? We've got people who will give you a free Bible. And um, so just turn to John 4 there. Um, really quickly, if you're visiting here or if you're relatively new here, one of the things that we've been doing through the year, and Brian's talked about this, is that we're going through what's called YOBL, Year of Biblical Literacy. And the idea is to go through the scripture from cover to cover in one year. And we're using what we call the Year of Biblical Literacy through um, a number of churches and organizations that have banded together and to produce a reading plan as well as support to be able to do that. Now, if you go on our website, calvaryslow.com, you'll be able to click on an area that says YOBL, and be able to hook up with that. Now, we're in different places on this. Some of you have been started this from the beginning. Obviously, it's a, sometimes a daunting task to be able to do that. But the good thing is that no matter whether you're new to it or you want to catch up or you've been there, one of the things that we always encourage is just start where you're at right now. And so um, we, there's a lot of videos on that YLBL site that allow you to kind of catch up, that kind of give you the theme of what's been going on, the narrative that God uh, does through his word about times and seasons and people groups. And so it's easy to catch up and be able to do that. So today, one of the things that we've been having a series on is the idea of being able to understand certain terms or phrases or words that are uniquely part of God's revealed word to us. And some of those are are deep and difficult words, and some of them are very common words. Like today, the word that we're, the term we're going to be looking at, and the idea is is salvation. So, the nice thing about salvation is that it's not just a Christianese word. It's something that really is a word and term that's used a lot in common vernacular of today's cultures, not only in the United States, but around the world. And we see it used in, you know, whether it's sports, you know, the guy saved the team, he won the football game, he saved the city because he made a touchdown, to our entertainment, Obi-Wan, save us, you're our only hope, you know, things like that. Or Marvel Comics, I mean, I mean how, many, how many years have gone by where there isn't one superhero movie that just relegates this particular group or individual to this hero salvation status? So whether or not it's the idea of your own human ability to save yourself or a government program to save you or an individual, it's common vernacular. What's important is that we understand 
what is God's revelation about that? And how does that differ from what I would call functional saviors? So I want to go from to a slide coming up here. And hopefully the slides will work. Yay? Maybe? Nope. No. 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 I should have checked before that, huh? It's under the file that's um, called um, uh, salvation, if you knock out of that. My fault. Should have checked that. Anyway, while she's doing that, I apologize. That's my own fault for not checking and making sure. There's three different files in the plug-in that I gave her in that thumb drive, and I just didn't tell her which one to open up, so my fault. Okay, anyway, the idea of salvation, before we see the slide, is, is that it's terms that throughout Scripture, we do need to understand the concepts, the ideas, the pictures of what that means in the original language that it was spoken of to in Hebrew, which is the Old Testament primarily, and also in the New Testament, which is primarily Greek and some Aramaic. So being able to do that, and once we see that slide, but these definitions that are going to come up, yep, there it is. Thank you, Christina. Okay. You know, it's funny. We don't recognize what's going on in the back with the soundboard or the media until something goes wrong, right? And then we go, oh, my gosh. They're great. These guys work every Sunday very hard. And so thank you, guys. Okay, so here's a couple of terms, and this is a very small sample. But the idea of salvation in the scriptures gives the idea in the Greek and Hebrew languages of preservation, deliverance, victory, being rescued, protection, to make whole, heal, a place of safety, a place of prosperity. Now, this being such a small um, sample of these Greek and Hebrew words that our English word is translated salvation in our English Bibles. But as we think about just these life experience images, all around the world, people want to exist in these conditions as individuals and also as a nationalistic culture. This is not just Americans. This is all around the world people desire to exist in this kind of condition. There's a worldwide striving to reach this existence. Now, sometimes it's thought to be uh, attained through philosophies, individual saviors, and or government leadership. So, I want to look at today's passage in John 4 that we'll be spending a lot of time in and then expand into how God reveals himself and his salvation throughout all humanity. So, let's, uh, let me get to John 4 real quick, if you're there already, hopefully. And we're going to start in... Oh, let's start in verse 4. And why don't we stand? Uh, Brian, Pastor Brian's been doing this, and I think it's good to stand as we read God speaking through his word to us. Also gives us some exercise. So, starting in verse 4, speaking about Jesus along with his disciples, they're, they're going into the north country above Israel. And it said that he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city 
of Samaria, which is called Sychar, which is near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or 12 o'clock. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then would you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw again. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Well, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've well said, because I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and she was referring to Mount Gerizim, which was in their country. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You can be seated. Now, we'll read other parts of this passage, but the particular ones that I just read illustrate salvation in relationship to God both in the past, the present, and the future. It illustrates salvation in relationship to living in this world. It also illustrates salvation in regards to our relationships in community. Now, these are the points that I'm going to cover this morning. Briefly spend time, Lord willing, I hope so, with this morning on this incredible deep subject. I had a lot of ways to go with this, but I chose, you know, in prayer, just asking, okay, how do you handle this because it's such a deep subject that hopefully will help illustrate this. So let's go to the next slide and let's look at salvation in relationship to God. And so the idea of being saved in relationship to God, initially God comes to us and delivers us out of danger from the kingdom of darkness into the safety of the kingdom of light in the cleansing by his blood of our lives and given a new heart and a renewed mind being born again by the Spirit. 
One of God's main desires throughout Scripture is to bring mankind back to himself, to save them from destruction and to give them life again. He's also designed a distinct way for that to be accomplished. You know, there's a lot of paths that lead to some kind of God. But there is one distinct way that leads us to the true and living God. That's really crucial in this passage here and in others, that we understand that. You see, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus declares this way to this woman whom John the writer is sharing with us, as well as all humanity that reads this part of the book. This is a very pivotal point in God's dealing with mankind in regards to life and salvation. Because, you know, if you've read part of the passages of the Old Testament, if you've gone through YLBL, we see that, covering that, that there are deliverances and deliveries happening throughout individuals and on uh, this people group called the nation Israel. And we see it in the exodus of God's people from Egypt. We see Joshua being a deliverer, representing God, delivering the people, bringing them into a promised land for victory and giving them a place to live. We see the judges being raised up as deliverers to bring God's people back to himself and free them from surrounding nations that wanted to destroy them. We read about the prophet Samuel being raised up as a voice for God to bring his people into this place of coming under this theocracy of God, this invisible God, to live out God's purposes for them. And then if you've continued through, we see kings being raised up like David. Um, We see Saul. We see uh, Solomon being raised up. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, God shows himself in his salvation to this chosen group of people called Israel, occasionally to individuals within Israel, and sometimes to people or people groups outside of the nation Israel. Also, up to this point in John 4, uh, God has prophesied through different men and women his intentions about for his chosen people, group of Israel, in the future, despite the fact of them abandoning him and his intention to reach out to all mankind through one Messiah that he would send. Now, God's interaction with people personally, for the most part, was only restricted most of the time to leaders of different types or through the intermediary agency of an angel through whom he revealed himself and his intentions for salvation. Now, in this passage, we see Jesus, who declares himself to be God in human flesh, come down from heaven to give life. So, I want to reread verses 20 through 26 and comment on a few things in this. And understanding the the process here is that, now up to this point, Israel, of course, had been one nation, but during their times of disobedience and wandering away from God, they had come to a place where the nation was divided, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom being ten tribes of the nation Israel, the southern kingdom comprising of two tribes of Israel. And in the process, the northern kingdom goes to hell really quickly. (laughs) They basically idol worship, they sacrifice their children on altars, 
They follow every detestable practice possible if you just look up historical references. The point is, at some point, God comes in, allows the nations of Assyria to come in, and basically wipe out this northern nation, distribute these ten tribes, some are left, they bring in other people groups to come in and inhabit, and basically there's an intermarriage between this northern tribe and the people groups, so there's these mixed marriages that produce this people that are in antithesis to what the true God wanted for his people. This is the point here when we're talking about the Samaritans is that people group who are despised by the, quote, true Israelites, the true people of God. So there's this hostility, which explains why she would even ask, first of all, that you as a man talking to a woman, why are you doing this? And you being a Jew, how can you ask a Samaritan for me to drink? Because she understands this political and racial divide that's happening here. So at this point now, Jesus is basically coming to describe a new time of God coming in a very personal way, not only to a one people group, but to all peoples and all nations and all individuals who would hear his voice. So let's reread this. And as she, we pick up this question again, because as she understands that all of a sudden Jesus is reading her mail about her life, and it just shocks her. She understands prophets do this, so she immediately shifts into a religious discussion which is pretty common. She said, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And basically the Samaritans understood that really God's revelation was only the first four books of what we call the Old Testament. Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. And that was it. And that God was to be worshipped on this mountain and that's how it looked. And so she's asking, Look, you Jews say this, we say this. Jesus totally changes the narrative here. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in one place or in another are you going to find God to worship him. But to worship the Father of all creation, of all created beings, I want you to know an hour is coming when that's going to be done away with. But he clarify something when he says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now, if anyone had the authority to be distinctive about what salvation and how it came and how to worship God, that would be Jesus. And he's very corrective. He really points a very narrow pathway to the true God. Because he's saying, look, basically... I'm sorry, you're in error. Salvation was given to one people group, and through them was to be salvation for the whole world. They just screwed it up by wandering away and not becoming his true representation, which caused this whole change, not change in God's plan, but at a larger plan of bringing people back to him through not just one people group, but all the people groups of the entire world as he came to inhabit them. But he says in verse 23, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Instead of an external law, 
or set of regulations or set of religious exercises. Jesus is pointing to the heart of the matter that God is searching for. And to bring salvation not in an external way, but in a new, brand new way that comes from the inside out. Because basically when he says, the Father is seeking such to honor him and to come into life where worship, this bowing down, this adoration, this place of submission, comes from a spiritual rebirth, and there is a truthful way of doing this. Now, the idea for truth here is a word in the Greek that simply means a certitude of observable facts, a certainty of facts that cannot be denied, is basically the idea here. And so, he's saying that based on these certain truths, this certain absolute truth, and walking in what is certifiably right and correct, the Father is looking for that kind of verifiable and truthful place of living under him. But not just in mere ascertaining through a mental exercise, but also in spirit. In other words, God's spirit this invisible presence of God was going to come in and birth in human beings all around the planet, and certainly he's introducing this here, the idea of coming in and birthing within humankind a a rebirth in the very depths of their being, their spirit coming alive to be able to respond to this invisible God in a way that is not visibly seen right away but is certainly felt and experienced. That is a unique and very powerful thing that God is crossing this barrier and saying it's not just for a certain select individual or a certain select people. This is for all people. And where you worship God doesn't matter whether it's in Jerusalem or this holy place or that place. Look, here we are in this warehouse building in San Luis Obispo along with multiple other believers throughout this community. And we are just rejoicing in this God of salvation. We are bowing down and singing to this wonderful Savior because God has awakened something in us that we previously never knew. Truth has come. Our spirits are reborn, which leads us to this place of life and salvation and freedom. So God is spirit, Jesus said, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so the woman immediately recognizes, look, we've been waiting for this Messiah. And you can just see, you're like, are you like the one? And Jesus says, yes, I am. Jesus becomes the way. He becomes the life. He becomes the truth rather than a set of regulations, a set way of doing things. The person becomes the way to God. And that's why it's a unique and distinct way. And Jesus separates that. Now, that that, that can make you angry. That can make a lot of people angry. But we'll go in and explain that a little bit and explore that. So you see, in verses 10 through 14... If you read that, and you can look at it again. 
Jesus declares himself the very essence of salvation, and he uses a term of water, living water. Now, that might seem a little odd, but why is that important? Now, to us, water is very commonplace. You can get water anywhere. Heck, we've got five, six, seven, ten types of water, bottled water in a store. Forget the tap. Nobody drinks tap water, right? Do you drink tap water? Yeah. No. We're supporting living, we're having a bake sale for life water that goes and gives people water because most of the world, water is an essential and not uh, something to be taken granted for. It's literally life. You and I, it's very easy not to be thankful that we can drink anytime we want. In fact, we don't drink enough water, do we? Right? Isn't that what medical science tells us? You know, we're drinking sodas or we're drinking Powerade or whatever. We don't drink enough water. It's funny. Isn't that just funny? So, then, at this point, as Jesus is talking about water, and even now, today, in most parts of the world, food and drink are so difficult to obtain as a reliable constant, isn't it? Isn't that true? And most human energies are expended to provide these life essentials. Jesus here, and in other parts of Scripture, reveals that God himself is the source of all natural salvation, food and drink, our very existence, and pictures himself as the very essential of spiritual life and salvation. Look at how God describes himself out of the prophet Isaiah. Let's go to that slide. God declares through his prophet Isaiah to the nation Israel at this particular point. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the existent one. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. That's a pretty definitive statement. In fact, again, if we're calling Jesus Savior and Jesus says, I am Savior, does that mean he's God? Because that would be a terrible blasphemy and a terrible contradiction to this verse. Interesting, huh? In this passage, he reveals himself and speaks to his people and all humanity about himself as Savior and his ability to save us from our perverse bent to follow after other functional saviors that really are only designed to enslave us in one way or another. Through God becoming man in Jesus, we can see he himself is always intimately entwined and never separate from all experiences and aspects of salvation that we're always longing to exist in. Remember that first slide. As you looked at that, you know, that first slide... Doesn't your heart cry out, I just want to live in that place. I want safety. I want preservation. I want deliverance. I want to be rescued. I want peace. I want joy. Those things are never separate from the person who brings that. Our first inclination is to move away from the very essence of this person and look for other functional saviors that are visible, that are easily seen. That's a natural bent. Whether you call yourself a Christian 
or a religious person, or if you're here and you don't know him, isn't that really all the same? We are designed to have a need for a savior. (laughs) And we will find one or another to fit that in our own image, in our own mind, in our own desires. One more important truth about this first point before I move on to the next is that throughout historical scripture, God promised to come as Messiah and save. And then Jesus, through his miraculous works, his death, his resurrection, came to save. And then he said, I am coming again to save. This is a solid hope that's based on not just a legend, but historical fact. Now, I don't have time to go into these historical facts beyond the point that Jesus did exist. It's not just in one book, but in multiple places, Jesus did exist, and that he did die. And the testimony from many witnesses is that he did rise from the dead. So this solid hope is based on historical fact, and it gives us an assured future to live for, along with the power of his life now in this life while we wait for salvation to come in him. Because it says, we look for his appearing. We wait for his appearing that will rescue us from this body of death. Which is nothing wrong in that. But it leads to the point, too, about salvation and what this is in relationship to this life. So let's go back to John 4 and read how this was illustrated in this woman's life. So, starting in verse 15, who was this woman? Now, I already gave you the background of the the, the. actual animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews of this time. But look at this woman. First of all, she has one strike against her in that she's a woman in this society. Thank God that you women don't exist in this society under that load, at least for the most part. You get on equal pay, you still are objectified, but that's another matter, isn't it? But think about it. In comparison, the rights that you have have been given because God gave them to you. And it's recognized in this country, more or less. But this woman, in this timeline, is, first she's a woman, which makes her almost less, because children were, were, were needed more, and men were glorified as, as the main autocratic place, Right? Secondly, she's coming at 12 o'clock to draw water, the heat of the day. Most of the time, water, which most of the time women were were tasked to go get for their homes, they'd have to come to this well from, from the city and get this, right? Notice this woman comes at the heat of the day. They would come early in the morning for everything they needed. So this woman is ostracized from the community at large. She's alone. Her life has actually been one disaster after another. She's ostracized. She's had five husbands. All broken relationships. And the man she's living with now isn't even her husband. So she doesn't have any legal rights. She has no protection. The guy's living off her. Pretty terrible place. 
But look at how Jesus approaches her. Coupled with the truth of what he told her, Jesus brought this woman out in a very delicate and tender, compassionate way. When he asked her a question, go call your husband. And she truthfully just says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right. And he describes her life in great detail. And that's very frightening. I mean, how many of us sitting in this room are terrified that God would reveal our innermost secrets of our heart, our lives. And yet Jesus is the one person that has the right to judge and condemn. And yet he doesn't for this woman. He draws her out, reads her mail, and then stops and allows her to to ask and come basically offering her living water, the fact that he's the Messiah to be able to do that. And look what happens to this woman. Look what happens in this woman. She she just gets blown away. She leaves her jar and runs into the city to tell about this person, Jesus. Now, Jesus, if you look at how he brought people into life in this life, In one case, there's this short guy called Zacchaeus, who's a tax gatherer, and so his way of contacting the guy is that, hey, I want to have lunch with you today. And in the process of having lunch, all of a sudden, Zacchaeus is transformed by meeting this Jesus. Other men and women all throughout Scripture have this different encounter with him that absolutely transforms them and causes them to come into this new realization of salvation in life. Isn't that how God called you? If you've known him, do you remember how he spoke your language? How he drew you to himself? Now, there's different ways he does that. There's many ways that that God draws people to his son, Jesus. Each one of you could tell me a different story, but they would all have the same. Before I knew him, I was blind and couldn't see. I couldn't hear. But now that I met him, I'm a different person. And I'm walking in difference because of him. So who are we now then with him living inside us and us following him? What does that mean? And how does salvation work in this life in regards to the life that we live in? I want to look at a slide. It's called, and it's in 1 Peter. Ah, I forgot this slide, so thank you, Christina. No, let's go back. Thanks. So, some of the conflicts, some of the things that we need to understand about living life in this age is that we're a new being whose final home, spiritual family, and final existence is in the age to come, in the life to come. In contrast, sometimes in conflict, with where we live now, our community, which can include your natural family, and a natural human existence in this life. So experiencing eternity in the temporary. 
Those are some things to think about. But in the slide in 1 Peter, let's go to that slide. Thanks. Peter is talking to a group of people which includes Hebrew Christians as well as uh, Gentile Christians. And he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now again, just for time's sake, I've got to really move a lot quicker than I'm doing. Remember, this this passage was first applied to the people group that he chose in the Old Covenant that we read. This was spoken to to the nation Israel, people group, to be this exact place. They failed at doing that. And so now God has opened up this same to every tribe, every nation, every people group, and every individual. You who sit here and have the, the very presence of God dwelling in you that have received salvation... You are indeed this people, this chosen race, this holy nation, a people that is possessed by him and belong to him. You're in light. You didn't have mercy, but now you have mercy. And so with that wonderful heritage that have been deposited in you, he asks and says, you are sojourners and exiles in this world. This is that new being as opposed to the old being. A new existence as opposed to living in this existence. So let's look at the definition of sojourners and exiles real quick. Let's look at that slide. A sojourner means a foreigner, an alien. Now, alien means something in our culture different depending on how you look at immigrants and how you look at science fiction. Depends on how you look at the word alien. The point is, in this case, a foreigner and an alien were suspect. They weren't part of my country. So nationalism was alive then, just like it is now. The idea that you are a foreigner and an alien to this existence that you live in now. The word exile means residing in a strange country. You're a stranger. This life, this home, this existence is not your real existence now. You have been absolutely transformed into a brand new being. And so you actually have a dual citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven with him. Isn't that that wonderful? God has now applied this to anyone that comes into this adoptive place as a child of God through the Son of God. Because of the life of this person that lives in us, the power of God that's birthed us, we belong to a new father. So you have a new family line. Now, that's a good thing. You have a new identity. Our home is totally different 
country, a new kingdom. But as we read that slide in Peter, we have this conflict that automatically is a part of our life. The passions of, sal- of this salvation God and the passions of our old nature that still is in existence. Look at something that John told us in his first letter. So I want you to go over to 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 16. It's a few books over. The same John who wrote this account of the good news wrote a letter later on. And in in John's first letter, he basically is talking about this wonderful love of God, the fact that you are children of God. He says, you know, the love of God is perfected when he talks about following his commandments and worshiping him and loving him. But, and so in chapter 2, he kind of writes down, and again, just for time's sake, I'm not going to go through that, but in verse 15 he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of this world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Every era in culture has had an interpretation about what this verse means. Now, in my early days as a young Christian, many years ago, as a young Christian man, one interpretation meant don't dance, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. <laughs> now, if you don't know what chewing meant, well, tobacco. So we have to be careful how we define what this means by looking into the original language and understand this idea of the world. First of all, you as a created being are unique in the sense that you imitate exactly what God is able to do, is to love something deeply and passionately that is beyond just mere human existence. The ability to love this world like God loves this world is in you but also the ability to love this world to our destruction is in us. Now, I'm not going to go into details for time's sake, but just understand something there. Understand the fact that when he's talking about the world, he's talking about this cosmos, this age, this timeline, this existence. And he says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Real quickly, lust simply means in the Greek a strong desire for, a passionate desire for something. And so within the deepest part of our being, these passions have great desire to attain, to have, to possess, to worship, to go after. The strong desires of our eyes is everything we see, I want. And the pride of life meaning our position, our place of power and influence, a place of rulership. Those are the things that easily possess us when you think about it and give thought to this. But he says the love of God in you is able to overcount this. And so what John is really simply meaning, our deepest struggles and passions have to be impacted in meeting this deeply passionate God to be free. The strong desires are a fallen nature to have, to possess, to grab, to desire, the pride of life, is never fixed by external rules and regulations. 
It's only cleansed by this passionate, loving God that impacts us at our deepest level to overcome that. We just don't get rid of something and live a monastic life. But we exchange one form of life for real life, real salvation. Not in what we can have, what we can see, and how we can attain, is what John is saying here. The saving love of the Father, the saving compassion and mercy of Jesus, the saving passionate desire of the Holy Spirit for us captivates us and lives through us so that others may see him, for we are also called in this life as ambassadors for this salvation and this king. One other point that's important to remember, all, pap- all people groups of the world who hate the truth that God in his right to rule in their lives or who love darkness will be in conflict with you. But that's also an evidence of this grace of salvation because didn't Jesus say, if they hated me, they will also hate you? So don't be surprised by that. So one last important of salvation, I'm not even going to be able to get to my third point, aren't you glad, is in respect to this life would be the evidence of obedience from this loving salvation in our life. How has this worked out? So one more scripture verse, one more slide, Matthew 7. Let's look at this verse on the slide. Jesus says this, everyone, this is Matthew 7, 24 through 27, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Everyone who hears these words of mine does does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. What Jesus is saying here basically is that every action of obedience and love to him and his commands is evidence of the salvation that's truly working in our life. God uses words in the scripture like fruit, works, love, and action as proof of this eternal life in us. When Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will remain forever, The power of that saving word in us is active, that that whatever is impossible for us with God in us, it's possible. And I think I'm just going to end there. So let's have the band come up real quick. And let's go back to one last passage in John there, the original place where we were. And a few chapters later, Jesus begins to describe himself in terms, again, going back to the essentials of life. And one thing Jesus said was, you you think in the scriptures, and he was talking to religious people, he said in, in the scriptures you think because you study them and know them you have life, but the scriptures point and speak of me. And Jesus begins in, in John 6 to talk about this laboring after the essentials of life and how fruitless that can be. And he comes down and says to you, most assuredly I say to you in, in verse 47 to chapter 6, who, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. And he begins to describe this, him coming down from heaven as eating of him as being the living bread. 
And finally, he says, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no life in you. And that says, really, many believers left him because it was such a hard statement to grab a hold of. It's no less hard today. But the essential is that whatever camp you happen to be in, whether you're in a place of brokenness and a place of desperation, how can God even do anything in my life? Jesus says, I'm near to those who are broken of heart. The crushed of spirit I will not remove from me. He is willing and able to rescue, no matter how desperate a place you feel. You may find yourself in a very great place in him. You may find yourself in a place absolutely pouring over with abundance. And the word to you from the Lord is, continue to press in. Be careful that you don't drift away. Stay in my love. And for another people group, why do I need God anyway? I don't need God. I've got all the things I have need of. I've got myself. I've got enough money. I've got a job. I've got plenty of food to eat. Why do we even need God? In all of those groups, Jesus very clearly says, unless you eat of me and drink of me, unless you abide in me, unless you stay in me, you have no life in you. You have no true salvation. So that's our clarion call this morning. That is the person. That is our salvation. He is that. So as we worship, this is a time to begin to respond to that whatever that may look like for you. We have communion in the back and on the sides, up here, up the front. And again, communion is simply a representation of a life that is eating and drinking of him. The essentiality that without this constant eating and drinking of him, I'm not experiencing life and salvation in in the sense of in this life. And so I would encourage you to take part in that as an active outside response to what's going on in your life. If you find yourself in need for prayer, I'm going to ask some of our leaders from community groups or some of our other leaders, uh, men and women, to come up, just a few of you, and just be on the sides. If you need prayer for anything, if anything in this message or in these scriptures just charged you and you have a need, just ask for prayer for whatever that may be. Whatever your needs may be, physically, emotionally, come up and receive prayer. So I want to have some of those guys come down now, please, if you would, from the back, some women and men just to come up here and be available for prayer. I'll be up here as well. If you want to come down and just kneel and do business with God, whatever that may be as we're worshiping, please do that. This is that time. And then we'll finish up. Thank you.